Welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. I'm Laura Fenn, and today I'm at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in beautiful Raleigh, North Carolina. With me is Dr. Patrick Trethart. He is the Assistant Director of the Astronomy and Astrophysics Research Lab here at the museum. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So I am curious, what do you do as the Assistant Director of Astronomy and Astrophysics, first of all? Uh, as an astronomer, uh, so astronomy and astrophysics, I mean, they're very closely related. Um, so what what I do is uh, I study galaxies. So cool. what I do is I try to understand why galaxies look the way they do and what goes into making them look that way. So just backing up, a, a galaxy is just a collection of billions of stars, you know, maybe two, three hundred billion stars, much like the sun, uh, all orbiting around a common center. Um, and then there's gas and dust in there, you know, millions to billions of times, you know, the mass of the sun and gas and dust within there too. And all of that is orbiting around a common center. And so you can get different shapes. You can get uh, shapes of galaxies that look like you know, giant like hoagie buns or cigars. Okay. Or you can get you can get galaxies that look like giant pinwheels, where they're just very flat disks with lots of spiral arms and things like that. So I'm interested in these spiral arm galaxies and why. How do you get these spiral arms? Sometimes you see rings in them and things like that. So so I study I study the the underlying physics of what makes these galaxies look that way. And what is physics? So physics is the study of, basically the study of nature, like the mechanics of nature. So, for instance, you know, when you throw a ball up in the air and it comes back down due to gravity, I mean, that's that's essentially physics. Understanding how that works, the mathematics that can describe that is basically physics. Okay, so movement, is looking at different kinds of movement is, is right. one aspect of, of physics. Right. I do know that we are in the Milky Way galaxy. Right. How many galaxies do scientists think there are? As you may have heard of, there's the Hubble Space Telescope, mm -hmm. um, which is this giant optical telescope about the size of a school bus that's orbiting the Earth. And what, what they've done with the Hubble Space Telescope is that they've, they've stared at an apparently blank section of sky, a very, very tiny blank section of sky, where they didn't think anything was there. There were no stars. It nothing. was just space. Yeah, it was just black. And they just said, okay, we're going to stare at this section of sky for hours, and we're just going to see how much light we can get from it, see if there's anything there whatsoever. And what they found was in this tiny little section of sky, that's it's probably a half to a quarter size of your pinky fingernail in that field of view. Okay. They found about 5,500 galaxies in that tiny little section of sky where they didn't think anything was. And so then what they do is they say, okay, well, in that apparently blank section of sky, now we just basically move that outwards and we say, okay, so if we look at all the sky, how many galaxies should there be then? And so they estimate there are about 300 billion galaxies in the visible universe. In the visible universe. Yes, yeah, so that we can that we could potentially see there are th about 300 billion galaxies. Oh my gosh. Each each with about 300 billion stars much like the sun. Space is enormous. And and so I would imagine that as an astronomer and as an astrophysicist it's probably pretty daunting. It's it's probably pretty intimidating realizing how much we actually don't know. Yeah. The the interesting thing about astronomy too is that this is a science where there's essentially no hands-on experience. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing that you can physically touch and look at. Everything everything that we do is is passive. Everything everything that we do is basically just looking at light coming at us and trying to figure out from the light that's coming at us exactly what's happening like in these galaxies or stars or anything else that we see out there because we can't actually go out there and touch it. Can't actually go out there and see what's going on, you know, unless unless we send probes to like places in the solar system, but Anything beyond the solar system is essentially too far for us to do anything in a, in a lifetime. 
So, like, for instance, if we want to study other galaxies, all we can do is just look at the light coming to us and just try to figure out what's happening. Basically, early, early on, I mean, Isaac Newton figured out that light, that white light, so the light that, you know, comes into your rooms or sunlight or whatever, white light can be broken up into component colors. So you get, like, the rainbow, the you know, the, act, the mnemonic Roy G. Biv, right? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Um, and when you break up those colors, or when you break up the white light into colors, you, you get, you know, you're looking at different wavelengths of light. So white light is just all these wavelengths of, light, of visible light mashed together, but you can separate them out into long wavelengths to short wavelengths. So red is a long wavelength, blue is a short wavelength. So that was important back back in the you know 15, 1600s. Figuring that out was a big deal. Um, but then also um, later on they figured out that basically if you take what we call a, a, a grating, so basically just imagine like a slide. Okay. Um, which, I don't know, kids nowadays still, not a still slide see slides. Not slide in the park, but, no, no, but like, a, like a film slide. Yeah, a film slide. Uh-huh. If you imagine taking a film slide and, and basically taking a very, very fine-tooth comb across it and making, making really fine, fine it. scratches on it. I mean, very, very small. So small you can't even see it. Uh-huh. But what you do is you take white light and you shine it through there. And what will happen is you'll get, you'll get a spectrum. You'll get, like, the rainbow out of that. But what, you can al- what you'll also see is, for instance... Like if you look at the red color, for instance, some of those lines in the red color may be missing, or maybe there's no color, and all you see is, for instance, a red line. Basically, what that is, that's a spectrum. And objects, so gases, like everything on the periodic table, like hydrogen, helium, it all has a unique spectrum. Every element has a unique fingerprint of light. And so when people figured that out, they said, oh, well, we can just look at these fingerprints of light from distant objects to figure out what they're made out of. And so, for instance, like with galaxies, now we, now we know specifically the wavelengths of light that come from hydrogen gas, so we can see where the hydrogen gas is in the galaxy. Oh, and we can figure out how much there is, where it is, how fast it's rotating. We can figure out all kinds of things from that, just, just from the spectrum, just, which is amazing. So I, I, I never knew that, that yeah. each element has its own sort of fingerprint right. of light. Yeah. Huh. So, so what we do is like here, here on Earth, you know, we can get all these different gases and elements and things like that. We can you know, purify and just have hydrogen, add some energy to it, like run some electricity through it or something like that, energize it, and then when it cools off, it'll emit this light, but it'll only emit specific colors. And and so when we look at that, we can see, okay, these are the colors that it emits. And we look out in space and we see this, those same pattern of colors and we say, oh, that's hydrogen gas. And from there, you can take what we know about what life needs here on Earth and mm-hmm. maybe make predictions about if there is life in outer space? Yeah. So, yeah, for instance, um, really one of the missions of NASA is to try to identify the conditions necessary for life elsewhere and possibly, you know, finding it and things like that. One of the important things is that life here on Earth, I mean, so Earth is the only example of life that we have, right? That we so know of, is, yeah. So we're always looking for if we're looking for life elsewhere, we're looking for Earth-like life because this is this is the only thing that we know does exist. This right. is the only form of life we know that does exist. I mean, there's all kinds of other possibilities you could possibly think of, but none of it has been seen, right? This is the only hard example we have. So we know that life on Earth produces methane. So we look for abundance of methane. For methane instance, is on, gas. Methane gas, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, we look for abundances of methane, for instance, on different areas, and we think, okay, maybe maybe this is indicating that other life other Earth-like life exists elsewhere and is producing this methane gas too. So, for instance, um, I think I think one of the future Mars missions is actually going to send uh, basically a chemical analysis machine or whatever 
and they're basically they going to look for methane, look for abundance of abundances of methane on the on on Mars to see if there's maybe something underneath the soil, like microbes or something like that, producing, you know, eating and then producing methane. And the hypothesis being that, in fact, if there is methane, then mm-hmm. it's you know it's, it's strong a likelihood chance. that there's yeah. life as we, similar to life as we know. Right. Yeah. I mean, it could just be some kind of outgassing or something, but it could also mean that something is eating and producing methane. How did you first get involved with this? How did you know that this was a path that you wanted to focus oh, on? Kind of knew early on. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I always loved science. I mean, so I, I love science fiction. I love comic books and stuff like that. So I was always really interested in like the possibilities that science brings out. Like, because it's it's basically, I mean, science itself is is just solving puzzles. It's trying to understand the world and the universe and the nature that we live in. And, you know, going outside and seeing, well, why is it? Why is this happening? And trying to figure it out. So I always love I always love puzzles. I always love science fiction. As a kid, my mom got Discover magazine, and so I'd always read the articles in there. And I love paleontology. I love entomology. So studying dinosaurs and studying insects and stuff like that. I was really fascinated by ants. And uh, but I always also loved astro- like all the astronomy articles, like stuff with black holes and you know all this weird stuff that's yeah. out there. And uh, and so so then it came to high school. I took I took chemistry in high school, and I thought this is really cool because there's some math here, and it's like. It's neat. You can figure things out. And then I took physics, and then I realized this is even better because this is way more math, and it describes things so well. I mean, you could just use math to describe, like, like a bullet traveling traveling in the air, you know, a ball. You can figure out how springs work. You figure out all these things just by using math. It was, it was just fan- fantastic. And then I took astronomy, and then I realized, oh, well, astronomy is just physics in space. Right. So it's like all all this physical concepts, all this physics that that we learn, you know, in these classes, you can just apply that to everything in space. And I was like, this is fantastic. This is exactly what I want to do. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned black holes, right. a fascinating concept. Oh, yeah. Can you explain a little bit about what they are and maybe what you know about them? The reason the reason why they're called black holes. So let's let's break down the word. It's it's called a hole basically because there's so much gravity in this object that nothing can escape it even light. So these are in so for for somebody who's never heard of a black hole before it's it's a it's in space in it's this in, unknown place in space. So there are different types of black holes. We have what we call stellar mass black holes that are basically, you know, the mass of the sun or to maybe 100 100 to 1000 times the mass of the sun. And then we have something called intermediate black holes which range from, you know, thousands of times the mass of the sun to maybe 100,000 times the mass of the sun. And then we have something called supermassive black holes, which ranges from maybe millions of times the mass of the sun to billions of times the mass of the sun. Now, we've only seen stellar mass, so these relatively low-mass black holes, and we've seen supermassive black holes. So you've actually witnessed, like, through the light and through optical or through telescopes and satellites and things, you've actually witnessed black holes. So, yes. Well, so the problem is, is that black holes do not emit light. Okay. So the only way, the only way you can see them is if something is interacting with them. Okay. So by that, I mean, uh, something has to be orbiting around the black hole. Now you can have gas, for instance, falling onto a black hole. And when that happens, you get basically a disk of gas kind of spiraling in and falling onto the black hole. And as it gets closer and closer, it moves faster and faster. And the gas... So you just imagine like a disk of gas surrounding a black hole just funneling into it. And the closer you get to the black hole, the faster it's rotating around. And uh, you get something called shear in this gas. So the gas will rub up against the slower moving gas on the outside. The faster inner inner track of gas will be moving faster than the 
little bit outer track of gas, and it'll be rubbing up against it, and it'll create heat and friction. And so it gets really energetic, and that will start to glow. Okay. So you can see that. So you can see the gas around the black hole, for instance. Okay. But you can't see the black hole itself. Um, the other thing you can do is you can see, for instance, things orbiting it, like, for instance, stars and things like that. And by measuring the orbits of stars, you can, you can determine the mass that they're orbiting around and the size of the object that they're orbiting around. And so by understanding the mass and the size of it, we know that, for instance, if it's super, if it's incredibly massive, but in a very tiny space, the only thing it could be is a black hole. It can't be anything else. So you can't directly see black holes, but there's a lot of a lot of good evidence suggesting that they have to be black holes. They can't. They can't be anything else. So the the it's a misnomer. The the name is wrong. There's nothing. There is no hole. <laughs> right. It's well. Yeah. It's not. It's not technically a hole, but it is black in that it doesn't doesn't emit light. So the so uh, the thing about a black hole is uh, when we talk about a black hole, we talk about escape velocity. And what that means is um, it's how fast you have to go to escape the gravitational pull of something. So, for instance, the Earth has, a gra- it has an escape velocity. And that's like when spaceships and things, they have to go faster than that so they can get outside of the gravitational right. pull of it. Okay. Right, yeah. So if you want to go to the moon, for instance, you have to escape the Earth's gravity in order to get to the moon. So okay. you have to go some velocity in order to escape the gravitational pull of the Earth. And so you just have to go some certain speed. So the, the thing with black holes is, is because they're so dense and there's so much gravity close to them, um, the escape velocity at some, you know, some radius, so, you know, some, yeah, some radius around the black hole, the escape velocity is actually faster than the speed of light. And nothing in the universe can go faster than the speed of light. So, for instance, if a light beam gets close enough to a black hole it basically will fall into it and will not escape. And so that's why it's black, because basically no light can escape from this black hole because the escape velocity is faster than light, and light is the fastest thing there is. I would imagine that probably that's a big part of your job is helping people understand and clarifying, sort of setting straight the science. Right. You know, a lot of people, it seems like, it seems to me like a, a lot of people really get their science from, you know, TV and movies and things like that. And I mean, while it's good, I mean, I, you know, that's where I got all of my, you know, concepts from, and, you know, Early watching, concepts, yeah, yeah. Watching, watching Star Wars and things like that, you know, is, that's where I got a lot of my ideas from, too. And then, but then once you actually start learning about it, you realize, oh, that's not really how it works. So, for instance, one of the, one of the common misconceptions I had at an early age was that you get into the asteroid belt, you know, between Mars and Jupiter, and it's just a band of rocks just so dense where they're just bumping into each other and colliding and breaking apart and things like that. Because that's the idea I had from actually from watching Star Wars. But yeah, but that's that's actually not how it is. I mean, the asteroids in the asteroid belt are actually separated by millions of miles. So if you sent a probe through the asteroid belt, you would be really unlucky if you hit something. So how can students learn more about astronomy and physics and astrophysics? One easy way to learn more about astronomy and physics and stuff is there was actually a, a series of documentaries that came out called Cosmos. And I think that is a really good introduction to astronomy and the concepts used in astronomy and how, you know, how vast the universe is and things like that. And so there are actually two sets of these. So recently there was Cosmos hosted by Neil deGrasse mm-hmm. Tyson, who is now the, I guess, director. Up in New York. Yeah, up in New York at the American Museum of Natural History. He's the director of, for instance, the astrophysics research area over mm-hmm. there. Um, and he's a really good science communicator. But before that, the first series of Cosmos was hosted by Carl Sagan, who, you know, was like the pioneer in, you know, 
astronomy communication yeah. to the public. Fantastic. Yeah. I have so many questions, and I would love to be able to spend days and weeks, <laughs> yeah. you know, picking your brain and, and learning things. Uh, but we do need to wrap it up, and so I'm going to leave you with this final question. Since this is the walk-in classroom, mm -hmm. what is your favorite place to walk? I used to live in Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, it's and that area. That area out there is actually really beautiful. It's the Ozark Mountains. It's the foothills of the Ozark Mountains, so it's starting to get into it. And uh, there's a place outside of Little Rock called Pinnacle Mountain, and it's just a fantastic little hike going up this mountain. It's it's not not huge, but it's. When you get to the top, it's you know it's a, it's it's a bit of a climb. It's a little strenuous, but when you get to the top, you know after 30, 45 minutes, you get to the top, and then you just have this beautiful view of the rivers, the mountains, the downtown area in the distance. Yeah, it's just beautiful, and that's one of my favorite places to walk around. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you very much. Take care. All right.